Joan Biskupic, author of The Chief, Chief John Roberts, you spent 20 hours with him seven different times in interviews, but off the record? They were a mixture. He let me put some things on the record to use in the book, but uh, most of it he kept off the record. But it was instructive, Brian, to sit facing him as we're facing each other over a long period of time. What would you say would be the first thing you learned sitting across from him for 20 hours? It reinforced the control I could feel. We both had things we wanted to know from each other. In fact, I was aware of how much he was treating this process as you know, lawyers refer to the discovery process. I think he wanted to know who I had talked to, where I was going with this. And I, I wanted to run everything by him. I wanted to let him know the kinds of topics I was taking on. I definitely didn't want to let him know exactly who I had spoken to, especially if those people were uh, on background, as we say, uh, not for attribution. But there was, uh, I used to, I would write a note to myself at the top of my notebook that said, remember, you want information from him. You don't want to give him information. And I was also aware, Brian, since you, you're, uh, you've read my earlier bios, and especially the one on Justice Antonin Scalia, who had given me 12 on-the-record interviews, I used to think as I sat across from the chief that if we had thought bubbles over our head, his would say, I wish she would stop asking me these questions. And mine would say, I wish he was Justice Scalia. <laughs> because he had been, first of all, Justice Scalia saw me, as I said, for 12 on-the-record interviews. With the Chief Justice, there was a negotiation going on over what I could use and what I couldn't use. What did you take away from your biography or autobiography of uh, Sandra Day O'Connor? Oh, well, she was, she was fascinating. You might remember that that one that came out in 2005 cast her not so much as the first woman on the Supreme Court, but as a politician on the Supreme Court. During her 25-year tenure, she was the only one who had been an elected legislator before she came to the bench. And I felt like she had learned to maneuver among the justices to, you know, coordinate to get those critical five votes. So that's that's how I saw her, and that was thematic how I viewed Sandra Day O'Connor. We have read that she's not well. Right. How, she's not. Do you know anything new about her situation? No. As you're probably aware, the family um, put out a letter in 2018 where um, she was acknowledging the Alzheimer's, but that was going on for a while, unfortunately. You did a book on Antonin Scalia. What was your number one takeaway from being around him? Uh he completely owned who he was. He was proud of some of his outrageous statements. He uh, felt that he was always right, uh, never in doubt, as they say. But he, uh, I would sit with him, you know, for two and three hours, as I did with the chief, and I'd be exhausted. I usually would be the one who'd say, okay, we're done, because he was, he was so interactive, and he, he loved talking about his childhood. That was a real contrast. Uh, Antonin Scalia Love talking about where he came from, his people, all of that. Uh, the current Chief Justice uh, was much more reluctant. What did you take away from your Sotomayor biography? Now, the Sotomayor one wasn't a strict biography. It was more of a political history of how she got there. And that was a tale of how someone who, you know, came from the Bronx, the projects, makes it onto the shortlist 
for a Supreme Court position and then beats out the others. So it was more, you know, how do, how do you go from point A to point B and all the things that could interfere along the way? And in her case, it didn't, as she was enhanced as she went along. I want to show you some videotape of Chief Justice Roberts at uh, Cardigan Mountain School uh, on June yeah. 6, 2017, yeah. and get your reaction. Sure. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. His son's school? Yes. When his son was graduating from, I think it would have been like ninth grade at a boarding school. And that was a very moving speech by the chief, and it went viral. He worked on it with his wife, Jane, and it struck a lot of themes that I think resonate with many, many parents, children, viewers. Uh, people were really impressed by it. How often did you interview Jane? Uh, Jane spoke on the record. In fact, Brian, I, for all of those who spoke on the record, I tended to bring two tape recorders, and for Jane, I definitely brought two because she was very valuable to me. Uh, twice. Twice extensive interviews uh, in Washington, D.C. What did you learn from her that you didn't learn from him? Oh, a lot more. First of all, she is almost the opposite in terms of personality. She's got a very out there um, uh, sense of herself. She litters her uh, uh, her conversation with things like, that's who I am, that's who we are, whereas Chief Justice John Roberts doesn't really want to tell you who he is. Uh, I learned a lot about what she thought had gone on in his family when he was young, and I would talk to cousins to try to verify things. So I learned, oh, and she told me something really interesting about uh, his time at Harvard undergrad. He went to Harvard undergrad in law school. And he was he was very insular in, in, in his life there. And I had known that from talking to people who had gone to school with him. Jane didn't, of course. Uh, I had known that he had uh, sort of stuck to his studies and didn't do many extracurricular things. But Jane said that the whole time he was in Cambridge, maybe only like once or twice did he even go into Boston. And I thought that was revealing of his his liking a small world, I, as you probably noticed, uh, Indiana native that you are, he had gone to a boarding school in northern Indiana that was, you know, quite prestigious and very, um, very tight knit community. And I felt like he continued to to recreate the the tight knit, loyal world of La Lumiere, which was not unlike um, the school that he's speaking at for his son in the clip you just showed. Page 23, got, this got my attention. I want to read it to you and get your reaction. <clears throat> An early promotional brochure described Long Beach, Indiana, northern Indiana, right. as, quote, America's finest country home community and playground, unquote, offering, quote, 20 reasons why better people live in Long Beach. The brochure referred to the glistening blue waters, the safe sandy beaches, and a fashionable golf course. It also touted the, quote, good moral character, unquote, of the residents, noting that, quote, Long Beach is a highly restricted home community. All residents are Caucasian, Gentiles, 
unquote. Why is that in your book? To give a history of the place he was from, and that section goes on to say that even under modern census records, it's still basically an overwhelmingly white area. It was, I wanted to describe the, the beauty of this place. It was a vacation era area. In fact, again, to sort of play on your own uh, knowledge of northern Indiana, I remember the first time I went out to see his home. I flew into Midway, which is, you know, the, uh, in Chicago, but the southernmost airport, and I started driving toward his home. And I was going through Gary, Indiana, and I was going through all the steel mill areas. And I thought, wow, this is the first time I've kind of felt a little bit for John Roberts, because this is a tough area to grow up in with all the smells and the industrial sense. But when you get to Long Beach, it's like an oasis. You'd want to pull out a picnic. Uh, and it's as lovely, in terms of the just visual description as you get there, uh, from that passage you just read. Now, the brochure that touted it, that they still have in the museum there that explains Long Beach to visitors, that's where I found it, uh, you know, it talks about the restrictions. Obviously, by the time the Roberts had moved into that area, uh, the Supreme Court had already said that you couldn't even enforce any restrictions. But that, it was created as a special place, not just for its beauty, but for a certain kind of person. How wealthy were his parents? Uh, his father was an executive in the steel industry. They were well off enough to send him to a very nice private school and to do well by the by the children. They weren't, you know, millionaires of their era, uh, like we'd have billionaires of our era. But they were they were very comfortable, and uh, uh, you know he he did not want you know they lived on the water. They their house was back a little bit from the water, but they had a boat and they. They were able to vacation nicely. He didn't. It's not like they traveled to Europe, those kinds of things that you see children doing today in uh, more comfortable lifestyles. One word that I saw several times in your book was anger. Are we not seeing the anger that exists behind the scenes at the court? And is that what <clears throat> you brought out in this book? Uh, anger and distrust among the justices. It's a subtle theme. Uh, some people have picked up on it. Some haven't. And I had to figure out how much I wanted to stress that, uh, because they want to put on a very collegial front, and I understand that. Uh, but there is a lot of tension there, not only between the right and the left, but within the right, where John Roberts is. And as you know, there's a whole chapter on his flipped votes in the Affordable Care Act case of 2012. And that left a lot of distrust. And through the years, there have been other incidents. I think that um, the chief wants to present a certain image. And that's what made him very reluctant to even be a subject for this book. Uh, and he is, the image he projects is part of who he is, but there are other parts, and it's very layered. And there is anger behind the scenes in certain cases, not all the time. And there are tensions. And I believe that just watching the court today, that those those continue. He worked as a clerk for Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist. Well, as he you was say. just so you know, uh, William Rehnquist was an associate justice at the he, time. Yes, he wasn't yet chief before he became chief. Yes, exactly. But what right. I wanted to read was Roberts later said the clerks gave Rehnquist a Lone Ranger doll because yeah. he staked out so many conservative positions by himself. Right. What impact? did working for Rehnquist have on Chief Justice Roberts? I think he learned from the chief, from 
the soon-to-be chief. Uh, William Rehnquist became chief in 1986, and John Roberts left his office at the time in 1981 when he went to work for Ronald Reagan. He worked with a very smart man. William Rehnquist was highly intelligent. He also knew how to plant the seeds for future rulings. And John Roberts, if he's anything, is constantly looking at how one ruling can lead to another, can lead to another, can lead to another. And William Rehnquist was excellent as a dissenter, sort of putting in uh, legal theories that he could pick on, up on later or maybe would entice a different court as the court got more conservative, which it indeed did. Uh, when John Roberts took over the helm of the Supreme Court in 2005, he had already five-justice conservative majority. And as we know now, that five-justice majority has been further cemented on the right wing. When was the last time a Democrat was chief justice of the Supreme Court? Well, uh, gosh, we'd have to go back pretty far, because I'm thinking, I mean, as a liberal, we think of Earl Warren, but of course, Earl Warren was appointed by um, President Eisenhower, who was a, uh, uh, a Republican. And Earl Warren was a Republican in California. At yes, he was a governor. And, you know, that he became so effective as a liberal icon, and the court was very liberal. So in that era, in that era... You could say there are no Eisenhower judges, there are no Truman judges, there are no Roosevelt judges. You could say that uh, in terms of trying to deny the politics. I don't think you can say that today, because now a president basically knows what he's getting. You know, President Eisenhower appointed William Brennan, who was also a liberal, and Chief Justice Earl Warren, and those two defied the, uh, the politics of their of the president who appointed them, just as in, in many ways, Brian, Justice John Paul Stevens did for President um, Gerald Ford, who appointed him, or more recently that everyone remembers, uh, David Souter, who George H.W. Bush put on. And that, so that, that was the older way, where a president of one party could end up with an appointee who didn't adopt all of his ideology or his politics, whereas now you really don't have that. All right, this will be quick. These are the ages right now of all the justices. There's nine of them. <clears throat> Justice Ginsburg, 86. Correct. Justice Breyer, 80. Correct. Justice Roberts, 64. Justice Alito, 69. Justice Sotomayor, 64. Clarence Thomas, 70. Elena Kagan, 58. Mr. Gorsuch is 51. And Brett Kavanaugh is 54. What oh, is, you got them exactly right. What does that say? It says that the younger ones are the conservatives. Uh, it says that the two who are in their 80s are the liberals. So if, depending on what happens to any of these nine, uh, and if President Trump gets another appointee, the court could move even further to the right. And that so much hangs on who's going to be—so much hangs on for the nation and for the Supreme Court who becomes president in 2020 because of these ages. How many years have you covered the court? Uh full-time since 89. But I, I started the, when I started at the Washington Post, really, as a Supreme Court reporter, it was 1992. Your first appearance on this network. Oh. <laughs> 1990. And we're going to show it, a little bit of it, right now. Okay, and this is my, like, punishment first, for coming on with no you No punishment, now. you'll see. No, I, I don't even, all right. It's a, a sidebar here with the headline, we just saw Justice Scalia Dynamo on the court. What's he like in arguments? Very animated, uh, very argumentative, 
very engaging uh, master of the hypothetical. He'll he'll go after a a, a lawyer, a lawyer with with real vigor and uh, and very entertaining. And he he seems to be he's one of the more vocal ones. Will always speak up, ask a question, uh, sometimes in a third hypothetical just to see uh, how the lawyer will respond. That was 29 years ago. And my, <laughs> no, my question to you, though, is... What, Should we end it here? <laughs> you're a lawyer. I am. Uh, what has changed in your mind about the court in those 29 years? It's become so much more obviously political. Our times have become so much more obviously political. Uh, it's not just our current president, Donald Trump, who likes to talk about the judiciary as if he can own his Republican appointees and that someone should be criticized for being a Democratic appointee. It's not just the fallout from the 2016 election that everyone feels one way or another. It's uh, there's There's been a progression. And what happened, for example, okay, that's 1990. The hair is okay. I thought it was going to be worse, Brian. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a lot worse. Okay, so that's 1990. You know what else happened in 1990? Right after that interview was when David Souter was nominated. And I had referred to David Souter earlier in our conversation as someone who didn't fulfill the hopes of conservatives uh, affiliated with George H.W. Bush. And that gave rise to that rallying cry, no more suitors, on the part of conservatives looking for who would be on the Supreme Court. So now presidents go through these extensive vetting processes to make sure that their, their appointee is going to fulfill their vision of what they want in the court. And that's since definitely since um, Clarence Thomas in, in 1991, that has happened. So you, ha you have that. And while the rest of the country has sort of become more transparent, it's, it's not, I'm not convinced, despite the protests from the justices themselves, that they are transparent about the work that they do. You know, they uh, can act in very political ways also. You had this quote. I want to ask you to explain it. Justice sure. Rehnquist is one of the few members of the court this is a little bit ago, who approaches the docket from a clearly conceived ideological perspective. This is from Linda Greenhouse of the New York Times, who we know now, after she's no longer a reporter, has very, very strong views, and they aren't conservative. So why was she calling Justice Rehnquist ideological and not referring to this court right now on both sides as being ideological? Yeah, but that's, if I remember right, that quote, and I should remember right, because I'm the person who put it in, she was characterizing William Rehnquist in the 80s and what he had done. And that reinforces what I had said about how he, he came with an agenda. He definitely came with an agenda. And and I, I would say, for better or for worse, Samuel Alito came with an agenda. You know, I think Samuel Alito approaches the law with um, very clear-cut ideas about what, it, what the how to read a statute, how to read the Constitution, and uh, he he bases it on precedent, to be sure. But he, as opposed to, for example, uh, recently retired Justice Anthony Kennedy, has a very consistent outlook that is ideological, and for better or for worse. You know, I'm, I, that's not, I'm not using the word ideological there necessarily as negative. So if you were a Republican uh -huh. and you had been either Eisenhower or name your president and you had William Brennan and then you got John Paul Stevens and you got David Souter, wouldn't you tighten things up? 
if you were a Republican and you saw what they did on the court? Well, the, uh, there are many strains to Republicanism. And I would say, yes, that's what happened. George H.W. Bush did that. George W. Bush did that. And, and certainly Donald Trump has done that. But here's, a, here's something else that's changed since the era of Eisenhower. It's the role of the Federalist Society. It's not just the president and his men or women making those choices. They're very strong outside advisors who handle a lot of vetting. And Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch were heavily vetted, more so than, let's say, John Roberts. John Roberts was vetted by the Federalist Society. And let's see who—and and Samuel Alito. Uh, and you and I both remember uh, the, uh, the nomination of Harriet Myers. Remember how that one went? Withdrawn. Yeah. And because she, she, she was one person who hadn't been vetted by the Federalist Society. And Robert Bork, who also was a nominee one point in his life, he went on the air after she was nominated and said something to the effect of, you know, she's a nightmare in every way. Uh, so it's—and and he meant it from the point of view, not that she was a woman, not that she had— not had an extensive background in constitutional law, which he hadn't, but they couldn't trust her ideology. And that's the thing. There's so much at stake. And we know from the polls from 2016 that many people who voted for Donald Trump did it because they knew that seat from Antonin Scalia's death was vacant, and they put a lot of stock in a Republican being able to name the individual. How much anger was there behind the scenes over the Obamacare decision? A lot. Can you explain all that? A lot. Yes. I, uh, at the time, I knew, half, I knew half the story at the time. I didn't know the whole story. I knew half the story. I knew how angry uh, Justice Scalia was. I knew how angry some of the other conservatives were. Because Chief Justice John Roberts switched his vote, not just once, but twice, and uh, gave some mixed signals. And uh, they, they felt betrayed. And then he felt betrayed because some things were leaking out. The liberals were baffled. Uh, as you see there, uh, two of the liberal justices switched their vote on the Medicaid part of this. You know, so much of the reporting at the time focused on the individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act that said that everybody had to buy insurance to keep the whole system afloat. But there was, there was another major provision in the law, a really important provision that expanded Medicaid coverage for poor people so that more people, uh, more people would be covered. And uh, that had been upheld by all the lower courts that had looked at the Affordable Care Act. But when it got to the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Roberts first voted to uphold it, and then he voted to strike it down. And Justice, Associate Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan switched their votes to go with him on that. But explain what happened behind the scenes. Well, okay, so you have an unusual three days of oral arguments in late March of 2012. And then they meet for the first time in their conference that Friday. And they vote. And it's 5-4 to strike down the individual mandate, with Chief Justice Roberts leading the way. And then they also vote on Medicaid, and they vote to uphold that, which is what lower courts have done. They don't vote at all on Congress's taxing power. And the reason I mention that is because, in the end, the whole decision becomes hinged on Congress's ta taxing power. But in 2012, in their first conference together, they don't vote on that at all. It doesn't seem to matter. And then, slowly, behind the scenes, Chief Justice Roberts has a change of heart. He doesn't want to strike down the individual mandate and have the whole thing fall. 
Let me stop you just a second. Yes. For those who haven't paid close attention to it, when you say individual mandate, that's the requirement that everybody have health insurance, either through their employer or buy on these uh, marketplace exchanges. Because the idea was that uh, the way to cover everyone in America is to make sure that people who were healthy were part of the system so that you didn't have what's known as the, what was known then as this death spiral, that people would get coverage or get medical help only when they desperately needed it and the system wasn't being funded on an ongoing basis. So to get the system funded on an ongoing basis, uh, everybody had to have insurance. I think the timetable at the time was this law was passed in 2010 and by 2014 everybody had to have some sort of insurance and there were these marketplaces set up to, to account accommodate that. And 2012 is when it came to the Supreme Court. As I was reading your book, I kept thinking, what, what an incredible and political institution the court is, because I'm sitting there thinking, why is the court, after the Congress voted to put Medicare and extend it, and uh, Medicaid, Medicare, and Medicaid, Me, and, Medicaid and, and, and the bill, yeah. why are they going to change the decision of the Congress? Well, they changed the decision of the Congress essentially on both. On and both, what the, but why? But the, why? The, the challengers, just so you know what the argument was, why they should overturn it, the challengers said that on the individual mandate requiring people to purchase insurance, they said that that violated the uh, con Constitution's Commerce Clause, which regulates interstate commerce and business. And they said you could, Congress could regulate um, activities that were already in place, but they couldn't regulate a non-activity. That is the the failure to buy insurance. That was that was the argument on that. And on the Medicaid one, it was more of a coercion uh, argument there. Uh, the federal government funds most of Medicaid throughout the states, and it already had plenty of restrictions on how states spend their Medicaid dollars. But Congress, in the Affordable Care Act, added a new one. And the states were saying that violates Congress's spending power because it's too coercive. It says that if you do not, you states, do not provide Medicaid coverage the way Congress is saying you should, then you lose all Medicaid funding. And that is essentially trying to commandeer the states, and that violates the Constitution. So I'm just laying out what the, what the challengers were saying. Is that clear? Yeah. Let's, let me show you. Let me show you some video of the conference room because you allude to the fact. Oh yeah. In okay, your great. book, that yeah. you only the the chief justice on your seven meetings with him in his office. It was eight, just so you know. You're reading. All right, Brian. I'm reading you, the earlier version. You're reading the earlier version. Okay. Okay. Let's say eight. <laughs> okay. All right, but he only took you through the conference <laughs> room the once. End, let's yeah. show that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then tell us why you think he took you through on that occasion. Okay. Oh, and this, how, and how important is that room? Oh, it's a great. This is where this is the room where it happens. This is really the room where it happens. No clerks. Can they, can people hear me still while you're showing the video? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, no clerks or secretaries, assistants of any kind are allowed in that room while the conference is going on. If any justice has forgotten his or her eyeglasses, you you have to call for them, and a little knock on the door comes, and the most junior justice opens the door and. Uh, that's a, that's I love the look of that room. Isn't there? Is that isn't his that office at the end there, or is it the other end? Oh well, you're looking. Okay, let me. Well, see. it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. But, okay, but, yeah, he's but, out through that. But door. looking at this room, yeah. did, did they ever sit around? Have you gotten any clearer picture? Did they ever argue in that room? Yes, yes. Not you know some of the justices say for the public, I've never heard a voice raised in anger. But let me tell you, when I talked to Scalia over all those times. Justice Scalia certainly portrayed to me 
plenty of angry conversations, anger from his end and anger that he felt like he received uh, for a couple little incidents. But uh, but anyway, yes. But they're, but they're, look, they're they're judges. They're they're basically mild mannered people. The the real anger plays out in in the writing. Uh, the unwillingness maybe to compromise on things, but I don't think you, I definitely uh, did not hear of repeated shouting matches of any type. Now, as a reporter, do you feel any reason that you can't talk about off-the-record stuff if somebody has died, like uh, Justice Scalia? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, there are so many negotiations that go on with the nine members of the Supreme Court. It's, it's really not, um, an ideal situation, because to tell you the truth, Brian, I am really wary when people want to go off the record or on background, because I worry that they're frankly lying without owning something. I have to worry about that a lot. You know, it's um, I'm worried about people casting things only from their point of view, and if I can't test it out in the real world because because I can't attach somebody's name to it, that becomes tricky. So what I have to do is take pieces. It's like, a, it, I, I, it's like a puzzle. And I went back and read through all my on-the-record interviews with Scalia and, and interviews I had done when I was doing the Justice Sotomayor book, you know, because that was all during the period in question here. And things that didn't make a difference to me for those respective books suddenly made a difference here. In fact, there's a wonderful line I have from Justice Scalia in here about um, he's comparing... William Rehnquist to John Roberts, and he's new. Uh, John Roberts is new at the time, and there was no reason for me to include it in my bio of Scalia. It just didn't it didn't matter, but it mattered for this book. And Justice Scalia is talking about uh, John Roberts' personality and the way he works, and some of his oh, a little more um, concern about what others think. And he says to me. Bill Rehnquist had enough years in to toughen his hide before he became chief. And, I, and that, that reminded me of the fact that William Rehnquist had been an associate justice for 14 years. You know, of course I knew that, but I, I hadn't thought about the consequences for how easy it was, using the term easy, relatively speaking, compared to the current chief, for him to step into the leadership role. When John Roberts became chief justice... He had only been a judge himself on a lower court, never on the Supreme Court, for about two years. He was younger than all of them. In fact, he was only 50 and the youngest chief justice in more than 200 years. And so many people discounted that. It, it didn't even pay attention to it because, uh, because he exuded such competence and such authority. But uh, that didn't make things really easy across the board in the beginning or throughout. You know, they've all been around brief pause on your background. I'm going to read it quickly so that we can get to the questions. But you, Georgetown Law, uh-huh. you went to the University of Oklahoma, got a master's degree in Marquette for your bachelor's. Uh-huh. You worked at the Tulsa Tribune, Milwaukee Journal, Congressional Quarterly, the Washington Post, 92 to 2000, USA Today, 2000 to 2012, visiting professor at the University of California, Irvine, Reuters from 2012 to 2016, and currently at CNN. Why are you in television instead of print? <laughs> Well, that look he showed in, you know, 1990, 
Yeah, that was maybe it. Maybe that launched me. It was Who a knows? Debut. No, 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 no. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not. Re- I, I work for TV, right? But I don't really consider myself in television. I'm still doing the same thing. You know, at, through all those jobs, except for when I was a regional reporter, I've always covered the Supreme Court, and it's been exciting to cover the Supreme Court for all these different news entities and media. And at CNN, my role is to offer analysis and to try to go beyond the daily story and to bring in a lot of the context that we're talking about here. And I love it. It's fun. I wanted to be like you. Is that it? Sure. With that. The oldest of nine children? <laughs> yeah. 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 Are they all still alive? They are. Thank you for asking. Any they of are. them lawyers? Uh, two others are lawyers. Two younger brothers. This on page 95. Back to Chief Justice. Roberts. Starr's involvement in the Whitewater and Monica Lewinsky investigations during the Clinton presidency in 1990s would change his reputation. Wasn't it amazing? He was, he was known so differently for those of us who had covered him when Ken he was Starr. a solicitor general. Ken Starr, exactly. Ken Starr, who, just so your viewers know, Ken Starr plays a major role in John Roberts' life. He's the person who hires him when he first goes to work for Ronald Reagan in 1981. Ken Starr is the one who has hired um, uh, John Roberts on a recommendation from William Rehnquist. Uh, so anyway, so Ken, and then Ken Starr is Solicitor General when John Roberts is the Deputy Solicitor General. They had lots of interaction throughout. But Ken Starr, when he was, he was on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, the same way John Roberts was also. He had a reputation for being a conservative, but being sort of a moderate conservative. And then as Solicitor General, uh, he, didn't have, he didn't have a far-right reputation. He had urged the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and he had, urged, he had followed through with the conservative Republican agenda, certainly. But he wasn't, um, he didn't have a firebrand reputation at all. And he easily could have been positioned for the Supreme Court. The, his, his, um, his arguments on Roe v. Wade didn't help him, but inter-department inter, um, rivalries also hurt him. But then when you see the Monica Lewinsky thing and how that unfolded in the late 1990s, it's a much different picture of a Ken Starr than we had in the early 90s, wouldn't you say? Let's go back to John Roberts. Okay. And this is from an interview, and you quoted in the uh, in your book from Susan Swain's interview, February 3rd, 2016. Uh, react to this when you see it. Okay. Do you remember your first oral argument? Oh, sure. Yes. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, a case called United States Against Halper. Um, I was very nervous, um, but I was very nervous when I did my last oral argument uh, as well. I think if you're a lawyer appearing before the Supreme Court and you're not very nervous, you don't really understand what's, uh, what's going on. You used the word nervous a lot in the book. It's fascinating how well he was able to control his nerves. He used to get physically sick when he had to appear in, in, in public and give speeches. And when he... Uh, I was shocked when I started learning what colleagues said about how his hands would shake before he would get up to do the lectern. Because anyone who's seen him, you know, when you just showed that speech from um, his son, his son's um, prep school, and and when Susan interviewed him there, he's the picture of calm. He has such a measured tone. He exudes such authority and reasonableness. 
and it's there but he has to work he had to work very hard at that and that oral argument just to tie into when you were talking about you know how long I've been covering it I started covering the court full time just when he was making that first argument in January of 1989 and he I went back to listen to the transcript and even though there were so many times when he had to answer I don't know his voice did not betray him his voice never betrays him and that's 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 something he's worked on do I remember 24 times he was before the court representing somebody else no, or was more it more than, than that? Uh, no, well, much he, more. Yeah. How long was he in the solicitor's office? He was in the solicitor general's office from 19, uh, let's see, late 1989. Let me just make sure I've got my, my time right. Yeah. Yes, because he's he's argued his, he argues his first case in January of 1989. That's the one that he was asked about in, in the uh, C-SPAN interview. And then uh, Ken Starr becomes solicitor general under George H.W. Bush in 1989. And then he comes on late 1989 as his deputy. I think I've got that. Mr. Chief Justice, and it pleased the court. Note cards. You say he wrote that down. Oh, no. What he did. Okay, so the opening phrase that all the lawyers have to give when they're arguing, Brian, is Mr. Chief Justice, and And may may it please please the the court. court. And so what he would do is he, just like I would write at the top of my legal pad, remember you're there for information, not to give information. He would write at the top of his legal pad, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, just in case he froze. He never froze, but his preparation was so, so extensive and so paid off. He said that um, he, when he had trouble pronouncing someone's name, which many of us do, you don't, but the rest of us do. Oh, yes, they do. Yeah, I mean, he, he would figure out a way to refer to that individual, maybe by his or her occupation occupation rather than say the name, rather than stumble over it. He was always refining things. And one method that he had that's slightly different from the way other oral advocates uh, prepare is he would have these sets of note cards that he would mix up and figure out his transitions. Say um, uh, a justice asked him about, um, you know, a due process question uh, in the in this argument about excessive fines, and he would want to he want to get back to his message, so he would figure out how to pivot off of the due process question into another constitutional rationale, or he'd figure out how to pivot up. No matter what was asked of him, he wanted to be able to always get back to his main point, no matter the order. So he was always uh, he was always working on sequ- sequences, but prepared for everything. Did you let him read the galleys? No, I didn't. I showed him Explain the... Explain what the galley is. The galley is like the uncorrected... Print. Yeah, the thing that I said, that it's a very much of an uncorrected version, especially if you're working on a book in the middle of a Supreme Court nomination, the Brett Kavanaugh one. So I was, I was under such a tough deadline, right in the middle of Anthony Kennedy's retirement and Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, both of which went so smoothly. When did you finish this book? I had to, I was, I had to submit, I had to submit the original manuscript in April of 2018. That's before Anthony Kennedy has retired. This this is the lead time for books. So then I could, I could, I was constantly updating, you know, as it went through the copy editing process. The very last thing I got in was uh, when Chief Justice Roberts said, there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges. I was able to get that in. But at one point, my editor said to me, this is not a newspaper. You can't keep putting things in. This is a book. You need to cut it off. But it was hard to cut it off. Do you believe that statement? 
What, that this is not a newspaper, that you have to cut it off? No. Which part? The other, <laughs> the, the Chief Justice Roberts comment, there are no Obama okay. judges, there are no whatever judges. Uh, there, there's a version of that that's true, and there's a version of that that's not true. The version of that that's true is the one that counters the notion that President Donald Trump has often put forth, that there's an automatic vote with the president. I believe that most judges are not there to promise a vote in an automatic way to President Obama, President Trump, whoever nominated it, but I nominated the individual. But, Brian, I do have to say, there's no way that a president does not want his nominees to reflect what he stands for as opposed to what his predecessor stood for in office. Personal thing with Chief Justice Roberts, you say he's had two um, attacks, uh, one of them in Maine, uh, you know, an, uh, like an epileptic fit. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure you call it fit. That's mm -hmm. way Seizure. Old I think seizure, seizure is the word. Uh, yeah. Um, What's an update on his condition? And how? And what was the first one? The first one was in, I believe, 1993. I have the exact date in there when he was on a golf course playing golf and it happened. Uh, or is that, th that's the first one that they know had happened. Uh, Any impact on him now? Not that I was able to discern and people close to him say that there haven't been any subsequent incidents um, since the, 2007 is the one where he was on, he was up in Maine and he fell on his, on the pier. That's the one you're, the main one that most of your viewers will remember. All right, here's 1993 video of Chief Justice Roberts testifying before the Congress. Let's watch. Habeas corpus is perhaps the leading area where what began as a historic protection of civil rights has been stretched so far that it simply impedes law enforcement without serving a valid purpose. Now, this problem is not new. Justice Jackson recognized many years ago that the many frivolous habeas corpus, corpus petitions that were flooding the courts acted to overwhelm the occasional meritorious one, which became like the proverbial needle in the haystack. And Judge Friendly years ago decried the fact that conviction and sentence in our system was not the end of a case, not even the beginning of the end, but simply the end of the beginning, paraphrasing Winston Churchill. He was deputy solicitor at the time. What are you seeing there? That's actually, though, can I just tell you, he, that he was a former at the time. At we're the in moment. 1993, yeah. We're, yeah, we're I mean, it's, yeah, yeah he's, just, he's just left the position, and he's testifying that time as, as, uh, uh, as just someone who's very interested in tougher restrictions on crime. August 23rd, 1993. Yeah, so he'd be out because Clinton would be in by then, right? Yes. What do you see there? 93. Yeah. Now, what did you see in, in him? Yeah, a, a very strong commitment to stricter enforcement of criminal laws. In that, in that appearance, he uh, talks about stricter enforcement of Miranda, as well as habeas corpus. And he's, um, it's a little bit of a take-no-prisoners approach, so to speak. Given his background and how he got to be chief justice mm -hmm. and worked for Republicans all through his life and was a conservative and all that, would you, if you were on the court and you were on that side, would you be irritated with him and what he did on the Obamacare decision? What did you think of that? What did I think of it? Yeah. I mean, what did you think of him well, coming up with his tax idea? Well, I'll tell you how I approach it, Brian. I approach it as a journalist. 
You know, and I think about what were his motivations and what was he trying to do and what were the consequences of that? And what does it tell me about maybe what he's going to be like now going forward when there's so much tension between both sides and so many eyes are on the Supreme Court as they were in 2012? And I think that's part of it, part of what happened in 2012. So much was riding on what the Supreme Court was going to do. And he clearly was not going to pull the trigger to strike down something that Congress had passed, as you had earlier characterized it, and a Democratic president, Barack Obama, had signed into law. I think he had many motivations there, and I think they crystallized only as he had to face it, because clearly when he first voted on this, at the end of the oral argument week, he was ready to strike it down. He wasn't ready to strike down the whole thing, maybe just part, but it, it emerged that he wasn't going to get the backing from other justices to do things piecemeal in the way that he wanted to approach it. So that's when he went to the taxing power, which I should say, not to, you know, not to defend or reject anybody in this scenario, but the Obama administration had argued vigorously for Congress's taxing power in this. Justice Scalia said, oh, no, they never—you know, that, that wasn't part of it. He characterized it as a fly-by-night argument. But that was indeed part of the Obama administration's argument on why the Affordable Care Act should be upheld. And as I said, they, the justices themselves never even voted on it in conference. But, uh, but that's what uh, Chief Justice Roberts in the end clung to. Page 276, okay. I want to read it. Um, the justices were accustomed to stark differences among them, but Sotomayor's writing was so personal that it put some of them on the defensive. We're in the uh, shooty case, if that's uh, the way you pronounce it. Yes, that's exactly how you pronounce that. And that's—I was able to find out a lot about what was going on between Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Sotomayor behind the scenes for the Sotomayor book. And I, I replaced much of it here. You know, there's— there's a justice who really is the opposite in so many ways. With her, her background is foreground. His background, he wants to keep back there. She's so proud of her Latina heritage, and she, she wants to speak out. And the, the section that you're reading from is a 2014 dissent that she writes in, a, in, a firman, in an affirmative action case called Chudi, where she talks about the need for affirmative action programs still in higher education, and she refers to the slights and the snickers and the put-downs that people of color still feel. And she writes this very um, passionate dissent. And he is so put off by it that not only does he, you know, sign the majority opinion by Anthony Kennedy uh, ruling against these this affirmative action policy in, in Michigan, but he writes separately, a, a separate concurrence, to admonish Justice Sotomayor for, in essence, you know, airing their differences, airing the dirty laundry that went on uh, behind the scenes. And he, he strikes back at her for suggesting that maybe he doesn't get it, so to speak. But this is—it seems to be central to your book, this whole subject— uh, did, justices always written books. Have they always spoken out? Have they always given interviews? And have they always done what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, take a very strong anti-Trump position during the campaign? No. 
No. Why are they doing it now? I would say there's a variety of reasons. I can tell you right now, those who write books, they want attention for their books. They want attention for their views. Justice Sotomayor is still promoting her book. During 2013, when her book came out, she was she gave lots and lots of interviews. She spoke a lot. She was I'm sure she was you know on on your air a lot. So that was part of her message of her identity and where she came from, and she wanted to communicate that. So that's one thing. Justice Stephen Breyer also spoke out a lot when he was promoting his books, and now his books are more not about him as a individual as somebody who made it, as as uh, was the story with Justice Sotomayor, much more about his approach to the Constitution. For example, his book called Active Liberty, which is sort of a counter to this idea of the originalism that um, Justice Scalia so embodied. So he wanted—it's part of it's part of them trying to get their message out. And then, and then you take Justice Ginsburg, who uh, just— I think was calling it as she saw it, and but then you remember on the uh, the Donald Trump thing, she did walk it back, and yeah, I don't, but it didn't matter at that time. Well, I don't know. I was the one who she said the faker thing to. I was the one who was interviewing her when she said, "I think he's a faker," and I think she. Uh, what did you? What was your reaction when you heard, heard her say that? Well, it's funny. I I went in there after um, two other reporters had talked to her, and she said the thing about, I'll move to New Zealand. She quipped that she'd move to New Zealand uh, if uh, Donald Trump was elected. This was in summer of 2016. And she made a little bit light of it. And I went in then, because she was already getting some uh, criticism in the media. So I went in to talk to her about John Roberts. And after we were done talking about John Roberts uh, for for the book, again with my two tape recorders, because she she always spoke on the record, uh, she... I said, do you regret saying what you've said about uh, Donald Trump? Because she was starting to get criticized, and she said, no. And then that's when she doubled down. And I was, uh, I was sort of—I'll tell you what I thought, Brian. Since I am a journalist, I thought, well, this is— this is, you got a this story. This is good. This is good. But, but then she did, two days later, just to, so that we have the record straight. Two days later, she realized that she shouldn't have gone that far, and she, said, she, she made her regret public. So you said that they want to get their message out. Yeah. It sounds self-serving, but I do want to know what you think. Why, if they want to get their message out, why don't they do the simple thing of allowing us to see their oral arguments? Hey, I... On television. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I am definitely sympathetic about that. Do you know how many members of the regular public were able to even get in that room to hear the Affordable Care Act case? So few. I mean, we're just talking a couple dozen because all the seats were taken up. You can hardly get in there to see cases because the room only seats a couple hundred and, you know, there are enough reserved seats and people have to rotate in and out and the lines are so long. So we don't get to see the nation at work. But as you know from just testimony we heard recently from Justices Elena Kagan and um, Samuel Alito, they aren't being as explicit as David Souter is when he said, over my dead body, but the message is the same. Obergefell? Yes, that's All how you right. pronounce it. Yeah, the gay marriage the case. The gay marriage case. Read yeah. this. In his written opinion, Roberts went further, comparing the ruling to the court's infamous Dred Scott decision of 1857. Later on, you say, he was trying to be less strident than Scalia whose dissents in gay rights cases, including comparisons between homosexuality and bestiality, had provoked outrage. 
Roberts did not want to be seen as callous and critical when it came to gay people, but the use of Dred Scott and his rebuke not to celebrate the Constitution, and you have in quotes, it had nothing to do with it, unquote, rang harsh. Critics said that in resisting the tide of history, Roberts was setting himself up to be regarded as the Roger Tawney of his time. That's That was the criticism. Is it the put, same thing? Is it? It, here's, here's what I think. This was an important moment for Chief Justice John Roberts. He used his only dissent from the bench ever to speak out against this. He wanted to make clear to everyone that he did not believe the Constitution covered it, and that he felt that the five justices in the majority had seriously, very seriously crossed the line, so much so that he, as I said, he compares it to Dred Scott. Now, for yeah, anybody... Why is Dred Scott significant? Just Because that's when... Um, then Chief Justice Roger Tawney said that slaves could not be citizens and could not sue for their for their freedom, and it's the worst. It's, it's the decision that justices invoke when they want to say this is the worst, just as the Chief Justice did there. Which I thought was I thought it was surprising that he invoked Dred Scott, to tell you the truth. And you know maybe he went too far, and maybe critics who compared him to to uh, Roger Tawney went too far, but. There it was, as harsh as it comes. And again, the reason I make a big deal out of it uh, in that section is because he he called so much attention to it in using his first and only dissent from the bench. You later quote Richard Posner or Posner from Chicago, Seventh Circuit. I guess he's retired now. Uh, But you say, and he was a Republican and a conservative. Yeah, yeah. You say Posner called Roberts' view about the whole gay marriage issue, heartless. Yeah. Yeah, Did some you? people felt that. Now, you uh, you know in there, I have his uh, a cousin of his who happens to be gay, who very much John Roberts him. has a cousin. Yeah, and she was great on this because she said, look, I can, I can easily look past it because he was in the dissent. Judge Posner wasn't going to look past it. He wanted to call him heartless. He, he had plenty of other... He had more... Um, he really struck at him not just on having heart or no heart, but on the intellectual underpinnings of it too. As did as did some other conservatives, frankly. So he got a he got a lot of criticism for for that rule, that dissent. What do you think the relationship is on the court? The real relationship between Justice Sotomayor and the Chief Justice now? It seems they uh, got some problems. I think it's cordial enough. Look, they're they're. They come at the law from completely different places. Uh, you can hear tension during oral arguments because she tends to be one of the ones who won't sit back and wait her turn all the time. But, you know, what she says is, I have questions to ask. Sometimes she says she can't quite hear if somebody else is still speaking. The chief wants things to run really orderly. And he also was once an advocate standing at the lectern. So he he doesn't like it when... Uh, the lawyer at the lectern is cut off as much as as much as happens these days, but I don't think I don't think it's a, a terrible relationship. I think everyone up there recognizes that uh, they're appointed for life. I actually think Brian that there are more tensions among the conservatives these days than between the liberal and the uh, conservative because hey. The conservatives control. John Roberts controls. Whatever John, Ro- however John Roberts votes now, that Anthony Kennedy is gone, he's going to determine the law of the land. So, the liberals want him to come over 
inch over a little bit, but the conservatives are trying to hold him back where he always was. Meanwhile, you have this chief justice declaring there's no such thing as an Obama judge. There's no such thing as a Trump judge. There's no such thing as a Bush judge. He wants to pro project a bench that's not political when they all have their agendas of sorts. Let's go back to your 20 hours sitting in his office talking yeah. with him. Again, looking back on those 20 hours, how, how did you change your opinion of him after 20 hours of personal back? And, and were you the only one in the room with him? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it was reinforcing many things. Actually, it was interesting how much he, um, I could still feel his very strong need to control strong need to counter maybe what I was hearing from others, challenge, challenge and understanding I had when after I'd talked to other justices. Um, very much aware of just the, the difficulty of trying to get beneath the surface. And time helped. Time Has helped. he seen the hardback version, finished copy, the, yet? Uh, the, I sent a copy to one of his very closest friends. I sent him an early copy. It doesn't roll off the presses until uh, for another week. So, No re reaction from no, I haven't. No, no. Do you have another justice in mind to write another book on? I'm thinking of stepping back and looking more broadly at the court. I'm kind of running out of ones who... Um, I, I, I don't know. Do you have one you want to know more about? Well, they're all interesting, uh, but uh, you start to say you're running. Are they? You're running out of people that'll let you in the door. Oh no! They. You know what they always start out saying? They always start out saying you can't come in the door, and they all inevitably let me in one way or another. Do I have time to tell you quickly my Scalia story on that one? Very quickly. okay. He would. <laughs> yes. He wouldn't let me in. He wouldn't let me in. I ran into him at a wedding. And he was like, you can talk to all my friends, but you can't talk to me at all. And, I, you know, I started telling him about what I had learned about his family. And he said, I said, you know, the very first time that your father was ever mentioned in the New York Times was when he got this great fellowship to study romance languages in Florence and Rome, because his father was a professor, as you know. And I thought I was telling him something really interesting and found out about him going to Florence and Rome. And he said... Sure, that's something. But did you know that's where I was conceived on that fellowship? And, and I told him more about his family in that moment at this social event. He called me the next day and he said, come see me. So, you know, you just, you eventually, you go in with information. They want to tell you information. The name of the book is The Chief. Yeah. The Life in Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Our guest, Joan Biskupi. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.